Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I think that's very well put. And a natural segue into one of your other loves, um, which is music, of course. And I know you spend a fair amount of time kind of studying the relationship of wine and music and wine and sound. What mm-hmm. is that like? Well, uh, I think wine is liquid music. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the thalamus. The thal- there's, there's, there's a few little organs in the midbrain, uh, the hippocampus and the, you know, there's about six. And one of them is the thalamus, which takes any sensory input and makes a quick decision about whether this is good or bad. So, and this is a very important survival thing. And so you don't know whether you saw the tiger or you smelled the tiger or you heard the tiger. All you know is that you're running like hell. (laughs) (laughs) So an example of that it's uh let's say it's a million years ago and you're wandering around in the woods and you see these red berries you put them in your mouth and they're either poisonous or they're nutritious and you are hungry so you chew them and if they're bitter then they're going to have alkaloids and you're going to spit them out this is all pre-language so so that's what's kept us alive is the good old thalamus and if you smell, you know, you smell a wine that's got good fruit and you're in good balance, then the thalamus is going to move it up to the frontal lobes and the pleasure centers and the do it again centers. And the, you know, if it's a really good wine, you get up to the euphoric centers where cocaine and chocolate hang out. And, uh, and if it's not, if it's out of balance, then it goes down to the limbic system, kind of a fight or flight thing. And that's the same thing that happens when you're listening to a jazz quartet and somebody flubs a note. Mm. Or, or let's just say you're in a piano, you're in a bar and the piano is out of tune. Mm. Now you may not know why, but you will leave the bar. That's just kind of a fight or flight response. So it turns out that wines. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, you know, you listen to music, you can tell the emotion that's in that music. This one is happy. This one is sad, you know. Uh, 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 you stopped loving her today. You know, you know that's not a happy song, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, they're sexy Sex, you know, all these emotions that can be in in music, and everybody can recognize them. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you that wines are the same way. So, like the sexy wines are the Zinfandels and the Cabernet Francs, and the and the sad, even angry wines. Those are the Cabernet Sauvignons. Mm-hmm. Now, if you play a polka with a Cabernet Sauvignon, it's going to taste terrible. But if you play it with, you know, Beethoven's Fifth. Or the, or the doors, people are strange. 
these dark, angry pieces, Metallica. Uh, the wine gets round and sweet, and it's quite good. So I like to play around a lot with that. And you can, if I teach you how to do this, I, you can enhance uh, every bottle of wine that you have for the rest of your life just by putting together a good playlist for that particular type of wine. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, are you, is it on your website? Is there some sort of yeah. to this? Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's a wine and music tab there. But I'll, to get you started, the best wine and music combo that I know, and uh, I didn't demo this for you guys, but I told you about it. Yeah, you did. Uh, get my Cabernet Franc and, uh, and get in the dark with something on fire. That's right. I remember you saying that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it puts you in a very Dionysian mindset. Dionysian. And then, and then put it on Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land at very high volume. Mm. And I guarantee you, that's a long song. It's almost eight minutes long. And I guarantee you, by the end of the song, that wine will be gone. Hmm. That is quite uh, an inviting experience. <laughs> and as I think about it, there's actually quite a few examples, like Napa Valley alone, of uh, wine and music connection. I know Monticello Vineyards, their winemaker, is very big into music. I know John Consgard is oh, yeah. uh, quite a singer, opera, mm -hmm. arias, blasting in the cellar. So, yeah, I mean, and there's that belief, you know, like almost osmosis-like situation when the wine absorbs the energy of vibrations or something. I know this is a different topic. Got it. This is like uh, Secret Life of Water, you know, the Emoto. Uh, uh, I'm not claiming that there's a physical effect. I'm not saying there isn't, but that's not what I study. Got what it. I study is what we call cognitive enology, and it's not happening to the wine. It's happening to your head. So is, is it like placebo effect, meaning you are kind of psyching yourself while you're listening to the music and you're body reacts differently to the taste of wine. Is that how it works? Well, I don't think so because the combinations I come up with are quite universal. Interesting. I can make you love or hate anything with my iPod. What is the most melancholic varietal? Cabernet Sauvignon. Like of all. Interesting. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said that like in my head. I would have said that Cabernet is more kind of robust and assertive and sometimes naughty. I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind, but not necessarily sadness. So how come? Uh, because it doesn't have any real bright fruit. Now, to contrast, um, Petit Syrah. Hmm. I like Petit Syrah a lot more than I like Syrah. And uh, Petit Syrah is a descendant that has a Pellersen component. Mm -hmm. Pellersen is very fruity. So Petit Syrah, the fruit can vary. Uh, in uh, Livermore, it's lemons. In the Russian River, it's cherries. Uh, in uh, Sassoon or Lake County, it's blueberries. But there's always fruit. Mm -hmm. Where Syrah almost never has fruit. It has a lot of tertiary aromas, like bacon and mustard. and, and, and uh, Especially cold climates, there are a lot of spice, yeah. But, but it's like a great supporting cast and no plot. It's like, it's like a male 
ballet dancer with no ballerina to support. So you have to give it something to do. I make it sulfite free, and then it has all of these interesting aromas from, uh, from the complex ecology of the microbes. And I age it a long time, and then, and then Syrah can be, can be really great. But just as a straight varietal, it just doesn't interest me. But Petit Syrah does, and the kind of music that works with Petit Syrah is valiant, hopeful music. Okay. The, uh, the theme from Braveheart. Mm. What if it's or, a uh, or a Star Wars? Oh, I'm in. Yeah, but Cabernet tastes terrible. If there's any hope in the music, it makes the Cabernet taste terrible because Cabernet is manic depressive. What if it's a blend? Well, you have to play around with it. But you know <laughs> what you do is you try some things. You get on uh, iTunes and you just you know, it's a great party game. You know, you, you have, back in the days when we would invite our neighbors over for dinner, uh, you, uh, well, maybe you have masks and you social distance, but you sit around on some couches and you were tasting the wine that you're going to have for dinner. And somebody suggests a piece and you just go on the, the free 30 seconds on iTunes and you taste it and nah, that doesn't really work. Uh, and then you taste another one, you go, oh, that, that works great. So, so you download that, you pay the 99 cents, and you put that in your playlist. Now you put that in iTunes Genius, and it tries to find, or, or Pandora, and, and it tries to find similar stuff. Got it. Through all that. In about 20 minutes, you can put together a playlist for your dinner. Nice. Well, and then you'll have it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Talk about value added. I've always thought that there should be a matchup between wine and something else. And music, certainly, any arts um, are natural synergies. So you obviously have had a lot of fun with it, and you've seen some great results, it sounds like. So what a great territory to dive into. Um, Wines are very reflective of their environment. Yeah. If you've ever sold wine door to door, you go to you know, eight different restaurants with the same bottle and you pour the Sauvignon Blanc and the guy goes, wow, this is really veggie. And you smell it and you go, well, it is really veggie. Oh, huh. So then you go over to the next guy and you pour it and you go, well, this is kind of veggie. And he says, well, I don't smell anything. And you smell it again and there's no veg. So it's because the environment that you're in is different. So the color of the wallpaper, it's just, weird wine is very reflective of the environment music is so uh the effect of changing a wine with wine and music is so strong that it kind of overcomes those local effects part of what i do in uh consulting for restaurants is i'll uh say okay first the environment and the food then never taste a wine outside of that environment and we'll put together a playlist for the, the perfect example is almost all Italian restaurants have a lot of Andrea Bocelli mm -hmm. the waiters get really sick of it and commit suicide but uh, but it really works with Italian food it works with Pinot Grigio 
And Chianti and Barolo is very interesting because Italian wines always have a dry edge and that romantic music that he belts out is, is really a great accompaniment. Uh, but, you know, you could have a hipster restaurant or a family restaurant or, you know, a, a, a dating bar, whatever you got. You want to make sure that the wines are suited to the environment in which they're being uh, poured. And that means you need stuff that'll work with the whole range because this person will order a Riesling and that person will order a Cabernet. So you need, you need anthems that embody your vision of, of the whole place instead of just a specific wine. Those inclusionary pieces are very hard to find. So wine becomes part of that canvas, that context, the ambiance. For me, you know, I make geeky wines. Yeah. So I have a winesmith anthem playlist and everything I make works great with uh, uh, Aaron Copeland, uh, Samuel Barber, uh, 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 Gershwin. Yeah. Really geeky stuff, right? But also George Jones. I don't know if you can see this, but all of my wines have some pathos, some sadness in them. They're never cheerleader wines. They're, they're never, with the possible exception of the Norton. So what you're describing is utterly fascinating, this kind of chameleonic nature of wine almost when it takes on the properties of the environment. I mean, when you hear stories when people went abroad you know, just say to Italy, and they had this great Chianti, and then right. back and they bought it, and that's like, it doesn't taste the same. I've attributed right. to their experience there and the context that That's were. exactly it. So we know this to be true. Uh, yeah. The other thing that, like I was talking about, the frontal lobes and the limbic system, corkiness. Hmm. You take a fabulous wine, and you put in four parts per trillion of of uh, of TCA, and it takes away all the harmony. The truth is that that harmony is an illusion. Just like a major chord has a sweetness to it, and a C C sharp, you know, like chopsticks, is is rough. That's not. I mean, there's no physical reality to that. It's just what our brains do. That's cognitive musicology. So we're trying to play around with those same ideas in terms of harmony and dissonance. Uh, and we call it cognitive enology. It's so interesting. I was familiar with cognitive dissonance before, but this is a whole other spin on the word cognitive and the word dissonance. You are just a treasure trove. Um, speaking of, um, your body of work, postmodern winemaking, is, is such an extraordinary um, book. It's, it's really a beautiful story, amongst other things. Um, um, and it's such a culmination of all these years you've poured yourself into this fascinating world that's so complex and maddening at times. And you were kind of organizing it. This is codifying things that are very logical. So tell us about the book. Well, let's start with a warning. 
my mother and my best friend in Boston, who's a computer programmer, both told me, we're really glad you wrote this book and we will never read it. <laughs> and I said, that's a really good idea because this is pretty much, you, you, I, I think any winemaker should read the book. Agreed. You have to be a real geek. And, mm -hmm. and I know you are a real geek. So uh, you, you should quell your enthusiasm a little bit here because most, if you just love wine, you're going to hate this book. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's thought provoking. That's what I loved about it. And I think okay, so that's it. I mean, you have to be into thought provoking. Most yeah. people, they'll have some passion about which they would like to, you know, maybe it's parakeets, maybe it's sports cars. But it, it has to be wine for you to appreciate this book. Uh, so here's the way it goes. There's a, there's a preface that, mm -hmm. about me. It's eight pages. Yes. If you really aren't comfortable with how wine is made, the very first thing you should do is go down to the first appendix. And there's like six pages in there about how wine is made. And I think it's, a, it's pretty good. It's great, actually. And then... Uh, it's very succinct, uh, but then, you know, there's a little thing about me and, you know, my travels and, 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 and then there's a, and this was Joel Peterson reviewed the first draft of this book and he said, Clark, you never told anybody what postmodern winemaking is. So, so I wrote for him, I, I wrote this, uh, it's about a 20 page discussion of what postmodernism is basically a reaction to modern science or modern art. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't any one thing. Mm -hmm. Just basically it's kind of, you get into the real world and you find out all the stuff that they taught you in school that turned out to be bullshit. And so then you do something else. It could be going into the future it could be, as I've done, going back into the romantic past or something else. So that's what postmodernism is. And it doesn't matter if it's architecture or theater or, or, or winemaking. So, so that's 20 pages on postmodernism and why I chose to call them like that. Joel uh, Peterson, of course, is the that fame, legendary vintner, Ravenswood fame. So probably a close friend of yours, I'm guessing. He is wonderful. When you, I was going to mention him when you said that I had the best sense of humor. I think it's Joel. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, um, he's really, really great. Uh, so anyway, then we get into 11 difficult chapters. I suppose you could read the first one, uh, which is called The Solution Problem. And uh, the solution problem is that we taught us in school that wine is a solution. Mm -hmm. And there is a whole lot of stuff buried in that. So, for example, we talk about thresholds. So if there's this concentration of a certain compound, like let's just say acetic acid or ethyl acetate or something, then it's going to have this smell because you're not talking about smell. You're talking about what's in the wine. And then there's, if, if wine behaves like a chemical solution, 
then there's a, what we call a partition coefficient so that the uh, what's in the wine will predict what's in the smell. Mm -hmm. And that's bullshit because wine is not a chemical solution. It's more like liquid chocolate. Most of the goodies in wine are in what we call colloids. All the color and tannin is not dissolved. It's in these little beads. Hmm. So it's a little bit like uh, the difference between a consomme and a bisque. Consomme is just a solution of vegetable flavor. A bisque has structure. It has these little butter beads in it. And so that means there's a place for the water-soluble stuff and another place for the fat-soluble stuff. Mayonnaise is like that. Bernays is like that. Chocolate is like that. Substantive. It, it, yeah, it's a two-phase system. And, and, uh, and that means, well, here, let me ask you a question. You can ask everybody a question here. We'll all <laughs> think about this. Uh, just, is this true or false? That the sensory properties of a wine, it's, a, it's color, it's appearance, it's aroma, it's flavor by mouth, and it's texture, mm -hmm. are a direct consequence of its chemical composition. I'm guessing it's false. But that's only because you think it's true. Because, but you know I'm going to Because I think it's true. And yes, it's 100% admission. But also, you just said prior to asking a question that yeah. our belief system is fatally flawed here. So Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. So, uh, so normally, when I ask that at the beginning of my classes. Everybody says yes. Well, everybody, this is like two responses. One of them is yes true and the other is why are you asking such a <laughs> of course it's true <laughs> so rather than to explain i ask a second question uh the sensory properties is it true or false that the sensory properties of a lump of coal a graphite tennis racket and a diamond are a direct consequence of their composition. That has to be no as well. Well, they're all 100% carbon. Yeah. And that doesn't make any difference. They're all very, very different in their sensory properties. Mm -hmm. what's, what's the missing element here? Treatment? Mm -mm. That's how you got there. Okay. But once you got there, What's the difference in what you got? Well, perception has to be a part of that package. You What's want sensory that? evaluation, like you want sensory evaluation, you want perception of what you're tasting. Nah, come on, a diamond is clear. A lump <laughs> is black. This is not observational. It's just the way it is, the way light behaves in interacting with those three different substances. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.